In our uh, passage of Scripture tonight, we see Jesus posting up. Can you guys hear this echo? Oh, is it just me? Do you want me to turn the gain down on this, Josh? Or, or Sydney? All right, let me turn it down just a little bit. See if that helps some. We have a new sound, new sound system in here tonight, so hopefully it gets better. All right, let's turn that down a little bit. We'll see if that's better. Okay, so in our passage tonight, we see Jesus posting up near the treasury in the temple. And, and uh, this is a, it's a fascinating thing. I don't know what you think Jesus does in his spare time, but there's this one moment at least where he literally just grabs a seat and he just watches people give a bunch of money. You know, okay. Um, we know from other historical sources that there were 13 chests in the treasury um, with trumpets on them. And we think that there was some way that when people made gifts that it was actually announced to everybody. Like either by the blowing of the horns or probably, most likely, uh, by the officials, the, the, the scribes, shouting out the amount that somebody just gave. And you can imagine this kind of sort of pomp and circumstance that comes with that setup. Or maybe not. Maybe, maybe that just sounds absurd to you. That somebody would set up something like that. Where every time somebody gave, we'd be like, Josh Hudson just gave 4,000 denarii. Whatever that means. You know what I mean? Um, okay. Uh, but, but maybe you think that sounds crazy. But, but we have versions of this today. So like as a nonprofit, the house is a nonprofit, we're entirely funded by generous gifts. And when we generate an annual report, should we put the names of the people who give the most amount at the top of a list? That strategy always produces more giving. Which is why when you go to places like the YMCA, you see tiered giving lists on walls. Probably at the university we just do, right? Diamond donors, gold donors. Still good. Silver donors, not as good. Bronze, as nice that they gave. You know. Whole dormitories on college campuses are named after one family who gave millions to the university. What Jesus notices, or what's pointed out to us in the text, isn't some antiquated practice that we've outgrown. It's just that when we see it done in a different way, we can recognize some of the dangers in it. You and I may not mind, or we might not think anything, of a dorm titled after a family. But if we hear that donors' names were shouted out loud in a crowd, that might sound strange to us. It may not be bad to celebrate big financial gifts. It actually may even be good in some instances to celebrate big financial gifts. But it comes with danger. In multiple places, Jesus, and not the least of which is right before this passage... He tells us to beware of these kinds of practices. There's a danger in them. In any case, this is what's happening right in the middle of the temple built for the worship of God. People would give large sums of money, and then their giving would be announced. And Jesus notices many rich people giving large sums of money, and one poor widow who came and she put two small copper coins in one of the giving boxes, which together those two copper coins equal just a penny. Many rich with large sums of money and one poor widow with two coins. Notably, Jesus doesn't criticize the rich. He doesn't say they shouldn't be giving large sums of money. He doesn't condemn the practice of giving. He just says the widow gave more. 
But how does that work, right? She put in two copper coins, and we know the currency that she's using is the smallest form of currency in the Greek world at that time. So it's likely that literally every other person who was giving actually gave more than her. So what does Jesus mean that she gave more than all of them? He tells us that they, the rich, gave out of their abundance. They had extra, and so they gave from their extra. She had almost nothing, which is different than nothing. She had almost nothing. We might look at her situation and compared to the rich say she had nothing, but that widow knew better. No one breathing has nothing. She had two copper coins. And she didn't even just put one in, which would have been half her wealth. She put them both in. Jesus said she gave more because she put everything she had in. She put in everything. So she gave more than anyone else did that day. This is what we've seen and heard in Jesus. The way things are valued in the kingdom of God is different than the way that they are valued in the kingdoms of this world. And we see this in the generous acts of the rich and of the widow. And I want to hone in on generosity tonight and how things are valued in the kingdom of God. But before that, I want to say a word about money. Money comes up all the time in the Bible. It comes up all the time in the New Testament. We cannot serve both God and money. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Do not place your hope in wealth. It's very difficult for those with a lot of wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. Our hearts follow wherever we place our treasure. Money comes up a lot. In one of Paul's letters to Timothy, we read that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And this is true regardless of how much money we have. There are those who are rich who love to see their money grow. But how many of us in our poverty dream about what we would do with more wealth? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And perhaps, maybe you don't think about that in terms of those sort of cold hard cash or debit cards or whatever, okay? Maybe what we think about are things that we would use money for, a means to security, freedom, a means for comfort, reputation or power, these idols that we serve because we think that in them we would actually have life, that that we would actually have the satisfaction that we want. Be warned, friend. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This is one of the reasons why we're told to look for leaders in the church who do not love money. That's talked about a number of times in the New Testament. Hey, church, when you're about the business of of recognizing and selecting your leaders, one of the qualifications should be that they do not love money. It's dangerous. It is the root of all kinds of evil. It's it's a root out of which all kinds of evil grows. 
And friends, you you must resist this. Resist the love of money, the love of wealth. It's like a cultural thing. In our culture, literally there's been times in the past eight years, I've heard from the office of the past, I should say 20 years, I've heard from multiple presidents talk. Like the way to be a good citizen in America is to spend money. Money's attached to our virtue in this culture. It's part of the ethical waters we swim in. It's not a neutral thing. It's, and everybody feels entitled to the money that they earn. And you can spend it however you want. And you ought to actually use it in certain ways. This is how you express your citizenship. One of my f- sort of favorite depressing stats is that at the turn of the 20th century, have you guys ever used Google's Ngram? You guys know what this is? Where it just looks at the frequency of words in texts. I think it's fascinating. Nerds like it. Uh, and, um, but if you were to search for, for the most popular word in newspapers to, def- to talk about Americans at the turn of the 20th century, what's the word people use to talk about Americans in the 20th century? The number one word that was used just 120 years ago, 23 years ago, was the word citizen. Citizens today think that. Citizens believe blank, blank, blank. You know what the number one word today is in news and articles? Consumers. You know how we identify ourselves in our country? By our buying power. We must resist this. The love of wealth. Money can be a tool for so much good, and it is a necessary part of our lives. We are called to provide for our families. We're encouraged in the wisdom literature of the Bible to save money and be prudent with how we spend it and what we spend it on. But watch out for the love of it. Fight against it, friends. It's a battle for our hearts and for our souls. And we cannot serve both God and money. It is impossible. Okay, now a word about generosity. I think one of the most common lies we believe is that we think we'll give when we have enough. Globally and historically, everybody in this room is rich. But I think most of us in this room don't feel very rich. Because of whom we compare ourselves to. So many of us don't realize that we have opportunities to give because we don't ever feel like we have an abundance. And so when we hear things about giving, we may think to ourselves, I mean, some of us obviously don't. Some of us are like, I'm not, I'm I'm about me and mine and whatever, okay? It's more likely that if you've come to a worship service on a public university campus on a Tuesday night, you might be open to the fact that you might want to be generous one day. Maybe. And when we hear things about giving, maybe we do think to ourselves that we will give one day when we have money, when I have resources, when we have time, well then, of course I'll give. And this doesn't play out statistically very well. Like often those who are most, this gets studied a lot, often those who are most generous later in life were generous when they had very little earlier in life. I will tell you, you may have already experienced some of this, it is a lot easier to give $1 out of 10 than it is to give 1,000 out of 10,000. I don't care how much money you have in the bank, I've never met somebody so rich that $10,000 wasn't a lot of money. It's, a, it's really like the statistics play out this sort of modern-day parable of Jesus' teaching that those who are faithful with little are given much, and, and those who are not faithful with little, even what they have, will be taken away and given to somebody else. Many of us believe that we can't give yet because we don't have an abundance yet, but that is a lie, that we can only give when we have an abundance. 
This widow had two copper coins to her name. Everybody in this room, everybody in this room has more money than her. And maybe we think that she shouldn't give because she doesn't even have enough to give. Or maybe we think she shouldn't give because it's not really going to matter. It's just two copper coins. I suspect that her giving is her declaration of faith that God will give her whatever she needs. And so she always has precisely enough to do what God requires of her to do. And if we think, well, what is two copper coins? Apparently, in the estimation of the king of kings, and whose estimation matters more than that, she gave more than anyone else. What if you can give when you're poor? That's the question I want you to sit with tonight. What if you can give when you're poor? What if your poverty isn't actually the thing which is keeping you from giving? More than that, what if you can give more than you've ever imagined? I can imagine how easy it would have been for that widow as she's holding two coins. I don't know why I'm using two hands. It wouldn't be much. While she's holding these, each one of these is smaller than a centimeter. While she's holding these two coins in her hand, hearing the noise of everybody else's massive amounts of coin hitting the bottom of those bronze barrels. Hearing the trumpets blast and the announcement that somebody just gave two years worth of her standard of living in a moment. I can imagine her wondering if this gift is even worth it. And knowing that if she gives this, she has nothing left. But she did have something to give. And even though it wasn't much in the eyes of the world, her Lord was watching. And he saw himself in her giving. He sees something of his kingdom in her gift. It was greater than any of the gifts anyone else gave in that moment because he saw her give out of her poverty, not her abundance. And apparently, in the kingdom of God, and therefore in reality... That is the true measure of our gifts. The cost. The sacrifice. How much does this actually cost me? And Jesus doesn't hide this, friends. Over and over again, when people want to follow him in the gospel accounts, he says things like, count the cost. To follow me, you must give up the world. His call to to his kingdom starts with the word no. Repent. Turn from the other things you've been doing. It will cost you all those ways. To follow me, you must leave everything else behind. To follow me, you must give up your own life. And what could be worth more to you than that? There is a cost to following Jesus. This is emphatic in his teachings. And it's it's not simply some cover charge to get into his kingdom. It's not some arbitrary like membership fee because Jesus wants us to pony up something. It's precisely what he does. And so he's saying, I want you to follow me and be like me. He poured out himself and took on the nature of a servant and loved us even to death. Having been betrayed and sold and beaten and mocked and cursed and abandoned and then strung up naked between two criminals there in his poverty. 
He cries out, Father, please forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. There in his poverty, he's giving. There in his poverty, he's using whatever he has left. And maybe all he has left in his humanity in that moment is the ear of his father who loves him. Which if you read the story, Jesus might not even hear God the Father talk to him in this moment. And he uses whatever he has left to bless others. And to the world, I mean, to the world, Jesus' offering doesn't seem like much. The New Testament writers bear this out. The cross is folly. It's foolishness. Nobody in the world looks at Jesus strung up on a cross and goes, man, that's powerful. That really makes a lot of sense. It doesn't seem like much. Even while he's there strung up, the people cry out, if you really are who you say you are, call God to send down his angels to rescue you. Demonstrate your power, King of the Jews. How can one man's life mean so much? It doesn't look like much. But God apparently does not evaluate the things of the world the way we do. What if every human life means more to God than we can possibly fathom? And if that's true, how much more value is the Father's only begotten Son? The one He gave to the world. The Son who gave Himself for our sakes. God doesn't just sit comfortably on His throne while His excess riches just some come tumbling down like scraps for us to lick up. He, he is, by even giving God, the t- ascribing to God the title God, He is rich. Christians are monotheists, meaning we believe in one God who is Lord over all things, who made the entire universe with the word of his power. He is rich, doesn't even come close to approximating what it means for God to be rich, that he could speak the universe into existence. He surely could have interacted with us in this way, with riches just tumbling down and us taking scraps from his table. But he became poor. The only one among us who doesn't have to become poor in some way decided to become poor, giving us everything out of his poverty in order that one day he would give us everything out of his riches. We celebrate this every time we come to the Lord's table. We don't come up here and just say, God is so rich that blessings and coin just fall off the edge of this. That may be true, but what we come proclaiming is that his body is broken for us and his blood is shed for us. And in his brokenness and in his bloodshed, in his poverty, he offers a gift. He offers everything in order that we might become the very righteousness of God. To God, you and I are the pearl of great price. We are the thing for which he would go anywhere and do anything. He didn't just bring you into existence because he liked you and loves you. That's true. He doesn't just sustain you by the very word of his power. That's true. He also became poor for your sake and gave everything of himself to win you back. What the widow did that day looks just like Jesus in a microcosm. She embodied the very spirit and the life of the kingdom of God that we see in its king. She gave all that she had in a radical act of trust that God would value her offering, no matter how small it seemed. 
and that he would give her what she needed in the moments ahead. In her poverty, she gave everything, and Jesus goes, now that is a gift. That is worth more than if she had given riches upon riches upon riches out of her excess. Which means that it's not enough for us to just look at what other people are offering in their time and in their talents and in their money because we don't know what it costs them, friends. None of us really know how much it costs somebody else to make an offering. I don't know what it costs you to be here tonight. And none of you know what it costs me to stand up here tonight. God does. And he doesn't measure things by the way the world does. One of you may be put in eight hours to put on this evening. One of you may have put in eight minutes. One of you hasn't put in anything. And we might look at that and go, man, the person with eight hours, now that's a gift. That's not the way God measures this. He pays attention to the sacrifice. Who would have guessed that those two coins of copper mattered more than the sea of silver and gold that they were dropped into? Who would have guessed that on that day with so many very rich people giving so many very large sums of money announced and proclaimed loudly to the crowds around them. Who would have guessed that this one poor widow who offered two coins would be talked about thousands of years later and that the king of the universe identifies himself with her? Friends, we don't know what it costs others. Which should free us from judgment and comparison. If we have little to give, God knows. If we have much to give, God knows. But we also know that each of us has something, even if it's just two coins. And if you wait to give until you have an abundance, well, first of all, you may never give it all. But you're also being robbed of so much right now. You're being robbed of the experience of generosity in this world. You're being robbed of participating in the so many different ways that God is moving. You're being robbed of the very way through which God often does grow and develop our character and strengthens our muscles in this kingdom of His. And most importantly, if you don't give because you are poor, you are robbed of intimacy with the one who made you. Because when we give out of our poverty, we are living like our king. And it helps us get to know him better. Where are you poor right now? Where do you feel or know that you have just so little? What would it look like for you to give out of that? Even if it seems meager... Even if it seems like it's all you've got, what if that's the very place God wants to meet you right now, tonight? What if you can discover that his strength is made perfect in your weakness? That his glory is found in brokenness? This is what we've seen and heard in Jesus, that God doesn't measure things by the way of the world. The sacrifice And the cost of an offering matters more to him than the content of what we're bringing. Even in our poverty, perhaps especially in our poverty, we are in the perfect position to be generous.
to see the power of God alive and at work in us. So where do you feel most poor? Where do you feel most weak? May the Lord who knows what it's like to be desolate in his weakness and to meet God in his brokenness meet you there and pour out the riches of his kingdom upon you. Because our king has declared blessings upon the poor. Apparently the kingdom of heaven is theirs.